Well, once again, good morning to you. Um, we uh, jumping back in, like I said, to our series on Ecclesiastes. Um, the reason that we're calling it under the sun, right? Solomon uses those two phrases over and over. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, empty, empty, meaningless, meaningless, is everything under the sun. And that feels like, we've talked about, feels like bad news. Uh, but the reality is it actually offers us hope because what Solomon is saying to us is that everything yeah, is meaningless under the sun, but we can live life connected above the sun to um, eternal reality. So the way that we've said that every week is that God offers us a full life in an empty world. Um, I mentioned to you that our students just got back from camp this week, uh, and I was talking to a friend of mine, Mike is from Southern Ohio, close to where I grew up. And he said, you know, my favorite uh, summer camp moment was said, whenever I was in high school, he said, our student pastor, Steve, and I, I, know, I know Steve, Steve's kind of got a charismatic, uh, big personality. He said, one year we were at student camp and everybody had a, every student had a job, right? They all had a committee role. And so Mike's job, he was on the fire committee and the fire committee just meant his job keep the fire going all the time. And a local company had donated some scraps and things that they had used, um, shipping tubes, uh, kind of like, um, like this one, um, you know, that Mike would use and throw on the fire, keep the fire going. So one night at Steve's fireside talk uh, that evening, he was talking and the kids were just really not all that they were just not all that interested in it. And Steve kind of picked up on that. And Steve's the kind of guy, like he's just, whatever it is, he's just gonna address it. And he's like, look, I don't feel like you all are serious about the Lord. And everybody kind of did, just got quiet. He's like, I think the only reason you all are here to have fun is to have fun. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray. And I'm gonna pray right now. And I'm gonna ask God to help you all repent and that he will drive the devil out of this camp. It just sounds like Steve in my head, right? Just drive the devil out of this camp. Well, about that time, um, my friend Mike on the fire committee, he grabbed a shipping tube or two and threw them on the fire. And unbeknownst to him in one of the shipping tubes, there was a huge black snake taking a nap in there, right? So he tosses that um, on the fire. Steve begins to pray that God would drive the devil out of the camp right about the time that black snake gets warmed up in that tube. And all of a sudden, out of the middle of the fire, this black serpent slithers right through all of the students and they spread like the Red Sea, right? And this snake comes out of the camp and it sprints off into the night and everybody stops. And they look at Steve. Every kid got saved at camp. Even if they'd already been saved, they just did it again, just because God had driven the devil out of camp right in front of them, right? And so I feel like this morning in some ways is kind of like, um, it's kind of like a black snake kind of moment um, for us as a church, as Solomon talks to us about how we have the tendency as human beings to idolize pleasure. Now we're going to talk about that idea from two different passages. You know, Ecclesiastes is kind of thematic, like Solomon, uh, he'll start here and talk about this, and then he'll move and move and come back to the same topic again. So we'll be in chapter two and in chapter seven. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you today, we'll turn back and forth uh, from the two of us. But we're going to start in chapter two, uh, and we'll start with verse one. It says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Now for the next six verses, Solomon um, is going to describe all of the ways that he tested his heart with pleasure. It's a, kind of a long list of things. And I'll just, I'm just going to tell you what's on the list 
uh, of things that he, um, that he listed, he tested his heart with. Uh, comedy, wine, buildings, gardens, servants, herds, flocks, silver, gold, male and female singers. And he closes that list in uh, verse eight with this, and many concubines or prostitutes, the delight uh, of the son of man. So let's, first of all, let's talk about, uh, let's start with big picture in the way that human beings, and certainly what Solomon says, in the ways that we tend to deal with pleasure. It's important to note that everything on that list that I read to you, that Solomon lists in chapter two, all of those things are not immoral. Um, the first one on the list was comedy. It's healthy to laugh, right? And at the same time, what Solomon is saying is you can't live for laughter. You can't live for entertainment. There's an end to that because if all you do is live for entertainment, if all you do is live for pleasure, what you end up missing out on is how God can use the painful moments um, in our lives. Uh, this week, one of the, uh, the OGs of church planting here in Lewis Center uh, passed away. Uh, he and his family attended here at our church. His name is Dan. And it's one of the greatest, most incredible funerals that I've ever been to. Uh, his family and friends said all of the things that you would hope and wish for that people would say about you at your funeral. And so God uses this very um, painful moment in the life of their family to become an encouragement to the rest of everybody else. And if all you ever do is live for uh, comedy, for entertainment, um, you're going to miss out on moments like that. So here's how Solomon kind of summarizes a, a bit in chapter 2. Um, these ideas about pleasure. He says this, then I said, what, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? That's a brilliant question. Brilliant question. Solomon says, why am I spending all of my time learning all these things? Because the wise and the fool, they're, they're going to die the same. Pick it back up. He said, I said in my heart, this is also vanity for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all have been forgotten. Solomon's basically saying, why do you wanna be the smartest guy in the cemetery, right? Why am I wasting my time on all of this learning? It's all empty, it's, it's all vanity as long as I'm only connected below the sun. He says, it's, it's meaningless though. The wise and the fool, they die similarly. The wise dies, he says, just like the fool. So how do we deal with that reality? One of uh, the core values of our church is gospel identity. When we say gospel identity, we say that means that gospel identity means that we are new, that when we come to know Christ, what happens is that God moves us from spiritual death um, to spiritual life. In doing so, uh, the verse that we talk about is 2 Corinthians 5.17, and we, which says, if anyone is in Christ, so when you come to know Christ, you are in Christ, right? When you come to know Christ, you are in Christ, and it says you are a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away, the new things have come. You have moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. So you and I sealed up in Christ, but it doesn't stop there, right? It's not just that we are in Christ, but Colossians chapter three, verse three says that we are hidden with Christ in God, right? So it's not just that you and I are in Christ, but we are in Christ, then we're in God in the broader context of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the Trinity. So you think about the realities of how secure, this is why we celebrate theological doctrines like the eternal security. 
It, look, you and I can't earn our way into it. Jesus earned our way into it. And when we, when we receive, when we accept Christ, we are eternally sealed with Christ in God. Why? What is the purpose of that? 2 Corinthians 4.11, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in your mortal body. So think about it this way. Gospel identity means that there are two yous, right? There's the inner you, mind, heart, soul, spirit, and there's the outer you, the physical body, the physical realities, and the things that people see. So what happens to us spiritually in salvation, when you uh, receive Christ, when you accept um, Christ, what becomes true of the inner you, the rest of your life growing in your relationship with God just means that what has become true of the inner you is now gonna become true of the outer you. That what you have accepted in Christ now has to be appropriated in your everyday life. That what you possess, all of the blessings and benefits that you and I possess in Christ now has to be proven in the external you, in the way and ways that you and I live. And the only way for something to be proven is that something has to be challenged. So the challenges that you and I run into in this life are opportunities for the things that are true of the inner you to become true, to be proven in the outer you, right? Make sense? Clicking? So inner you, outer you. If you're in Christ, what has happened is you have then become a new creation. Now, why is um, why is that such a big deal? Go back to um, chapter, uh, chapter two, verse eight B. This is where Solomon starts to focus in again a little bit for us, um, this reality of pleasure. He says, and I had many concubines, right? A delight um, to the sons, uh, a delight to the sons of man. So what becomes reality then for us, you and I born into this world, separated from God, and I'm gonna use this curvy wire as descriptive of that. What happens inner you, outer you, there's a number of ways that we as human beings approach uh, God. One of those is, um, is a rebellious way. So God, right, come to God, straight line, God is, there's a standard for spiritual life it comes to God. And you and I are born in this world and we're kind of curvy, right? A little bit crooked, all of us are flawed, and so one way to think about spiritual life is, okay, well, I'll become a Christian, but we start to think, how curvy can I still be and be a Christian? In other words, um, what I wanna do is I wanna have God, but I wanna be as far away from him in terms of the outer me as I can be, right? I wanna be as rebellious as, that's completely backwards in the way that we think. We have received the goodness and the benefit of God in our lives. The idea, right, is that the life of Christ would be made manifest in our mortal bodies. But there's another way we tend to do it. It's not just through rebellion, but it's also through, also through religion. You and I are born in this world, flawed, curvy. What sometimes we try and do is we try and stretch this wire and make it as straight as possible on our own by doing good things, right? By doing the right things to try and impress God and to make ourselves more presentable as we live in comparison to other people. So neither religion nor rebellion, neither of those things are gonna meet the standard that God has given to us. And what Solomon does when he starts to narrow in, or at least as we narrow in this morning about Solomon's discussion about pleasure, 
Solomon writes three books in the Old Testament. He writes the Song of Songs, which is mainly about the joys of uh, marital sexuality and love between one man, one woman in the context of a biblical marital relationship. Then he writes the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs, when he talks about sexuality, he mainly talks about the dangers of sexuality outside of the context of biblical marriage. That's kind of his folks. When he writes to us in Ecclesiastes, the book that we're looking at, he really talks about it from the perspective of schemes. That's, that's kind of how he approaches it. So if you go over to chapter seven now, verse 26, that's where we'll pick it up. He says this, I turned my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom and the, what's the next word? What's the next word? The scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. A woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. So what's the scheme that Solomon um, is fighting against? It's this reality that you and I tend to think that romance or sex is gonna be the thing that satisfies us. So it's this idea that he's fighting is neither romance nor sex is gonna satisfy your soul. In those verses, Solomon kind of describes Jerusalem's uh, red light district. He said, here's what I see. And you see it over and over and over again in Proverbs. This, this young guy wandering down the street and he wanders by the house of prostitution. That's how Solomon uh, describes it kind of multiple times in Proverbs. And then I think it's a reference again here um, in Ecclesiastes. He's talking about this, this scenario. And so the idea, right, is that a successful love life, I'm gonna say this to you, a successful love life is not, necessarily just the nose. I'll talk about that. I'll talk about that more um, in a minute, but it's not just about the nose because when you read what Solomon says, that's kind of what you, um, that's kind of what you pick up on. But here, what he's saying is this thing, this gift in romance and sexuality that God has given us, what begins feeling like pleasure ultimately ends up feeling like pain. He says, there's this guy, then he's wandering. He's wandering through, right, the streets in the red light district. And, and listen, the message, I don't think the message is the women are dangerous. Like, I don't think that's necessarily the big picture that Solomon is getting at. Because I'll, well, I don't have to tell you, you know this, right? The, the women who work in prostitution, certainly in their day, they were working for men who were every bit, if not more so, just as dangerous. So is there a reality where the, the young man needs to be aware and needs to be, absolutely. But the idea that young men are just doofuses, right? Who are walking down the streets um, all the time and are like, um, you know, who are like dogs in heat who can't control themselves. I don't think that's the reality that Solomon is pushing us towards. I think, right, and look, because listen, Solomon's not a victim here, right? Remember week one, we talked about Solomon has 700 wives, 300 prostitutes. He has a thousand women. He is not, Solomon is not, he's not some sort of victim in this, in this game. What he is pushing us towards both men and women is this reality, this reality that sexual love, romantic love is not that thing. It's not that thing that's gonna satisfy your soul. 
Look at how he, he um, says it there at the end of verse 26. He gives us the solution. He, said, he says, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner uh, is taken by her. The way that you and I, I believe, effectively fight our human desire to satisfy ourselves with pleasure is the beginning of that verse. He who what? Pleases God. So the idea there is that there is a love that is better than romantic love. There is a love that is better than physical love for you and me. He who pleases God, that's how you and I escape. So we look away from, right, just the physical realities that we see, and we look towards what has been deposited in us in the inner us. And as the inner us grows closer in our relationship with God, we become satisfied in him. Then the other things in this world inside of God's boundaries become blessings, right? In our lives. So a successful love life is not about, it's not just about what you say no to. It's more about what you say yes to or who you say yes to. And there's all kinds of ways that uh, historical Christianity, we've navigated this. I'll give you just one example. It's kind of a hot topic right now. There's this thing um, uh, in Christianity that kind of gets batted around right now called purity culture. And the idea of purity culture is about 25 or 30 or so years ago, Christian leaders in our country wanted to call young Christian people to sexual fidelity. So the idea was uh, there was curriculum that was written about it. it was, um, one of the curricula that was written was called True Love Waits. Uh, there were symbols, right? There were promise rings. Young people would put on a promise ring and it was kind of a, a promise to your future spouse that you were not gonna engage in premarital sexual activity, that you were gonna wait, right, on marriage. And over time, what has happened is that this is kind of, this idea is kind of criticized today. Why is that? Because there were some places, not all places, some churches, not all churches, some pastors, not all pastors. They celebrated what you were set apart from and they didn't emphasize as much who you were set apart to. Does that make sense, right? We want to be as believers, yes, we wanna be set apart from some things. Right? The realities of the standard of what God's word teaches, what God's word says, there are things that we want to be set apart from. But the purpose of being set apart from is that we are set apart to someone, set apart from some things, from some activities, thinking about what God says and God's word is best, but we are set apart to someone so much greater, so much better. And over time, what can happen is that we can think more. And listen, I, I want you to hear me. I'm all about the nose. I'm, I'm for the nose, right? I'm for the boundaries. I'm for the Billy Graham rules. I'm, I'm, I understand all of that. And at the same time, if all you have are no's and all you have are don'ts, you're just setting yourself up for failure. You're sabotaging yourself because you're settling for less. Uh, you're settling for less than God's best. Now, is there some is there some um, is there some safety um, in in the nose and the boundaries? Absolutely. Listen, Solomon. If anyone understood, if anyone understood. Um, what can happen and the dangers of crossing lines and crossing boundaries, uh, physically, sexually. Solomon watched his half-brother Amnon sexually abuse his half-sister Tamar. 
in the Old Testament. Solomon and certainly his family understood what can happen when we live outside of God's boundaries. And some of us here in the room know the, know the pain, understand the difficulty, having gone through situations and circumstances like those, wishing that we could undo things that maybe we have done, wishing that we could go back and fix things that have been done to us, right? Change that we could go back and we could, we understand the realities. So is there, uh, there's certainly safety. You can save yourself trauma and emotional harm by following the standard. And at the same time, the purpose of being set apart from things is to be set apart to someone, someone, something better. So pick it back up uh, there in verse 29. I think this is how, um, this is how Solomon uh, kind of explains it. He says, see, this alone I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. See this alone, I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So what God says, is that, or what Solomon says, is that God made man upright. What do, you, what do you think he's talking about there? I think it's a reference to Genesis. I think he's saying that God created Adam and Eve, right? In his image, Garden of Eden, but Adam and Eve chose sin. And in choosing sin, Adam and Eve passed sin down to all of the human race. What does that mean? That means that none of us is perfect, that every one of us in this room is flawed. Every, let me say it this way. Everybody in the room is a schemer. Everybody. We all have schemes about how we want to make pleasure work in our lives. Somewhere in the long list of things, right, that I read to you, we all fall in somewhere. And certainly in the context of romance and sexuality, we all find ways to try and make those realities work for us. So that's the bad news of the gospel that when we are born into this world because of the sin of Adam and Eve that's been passed down to all the human race, we are sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. That's the bad news of the God. But the good news of the gospel is that God came to us in the person of Christ and that he sacrificed himself for our sins, for our flaws on the cross. And in doing so, in his kindness, he extended to us a better, more everlasting kind of love than you and I could ever imagine. Now, is the standard, is the standard important? Yes. It's important because the standard teaches us that we, primarily, we can never meet it on our own. But what we can do is we can repeat it. And we repeat it, and, and that's good, right? That's a good thing to say the things that God says about sexuality because those things are for, those things are for our best. And so we can say um, heterosexual sex outside the context of marriage, outside of God's boundaries, not God's best. Pornography, outside of God's boundaries, not God's best. Homosexuality, outside of God's boundaries, not God's best. Maleness and femaleness are created by God. They come from Him not from us. We can repeat the standard and repeating the standard, um, those standards is important, right? To one another. 
And at the same time, if all we do is repeat the standard and try and create our own righteousness, right? Try and make ourselves as straight as possible compared to others, we are stopping short of the goal. So I think it is incumbent upon us as believers. It is incumbent upon us as the church. Whenever we talk about these matters, we are absolutely as compassionate as the gospel allows. Because there's a lot of confusion. Same-sex attraction is a confusing thing. Gender identity, you dump a big uh, dose of adolescence in the middle of all that, it is a very confusing thing. And I would encourage us as a church, instead of taking the keyboard cardboard approach, right? It's easy to sit behind a keyboard, right? And post quippy little sayings to social media, your little got ya sayings, right? It's easy to do that. It's easy to, to put a sign on a cardboard and to go out and say, this is, this is my, my view. What's I think so much more valuable is to sit down and have a, have a conversation. I think that, um, I, I think that the reason that we as a culture um, are so sexually sensitive is that we're not eternally satisfied. I'm gonna say that to you again. I think the reason that we as a culture are so sexually sensitive and we get so passionate about it is that we are not eternally satisfied, right? That what has not become true of us is that the inner you that has fallen in love with Jesus, we're not allowing that to work its way out into the outer you into your behavior. And so what ends up happening a lot of times is that, um, there's no other way to say it. We worship sex and romance in our culture. We put love on a pedestal. God put love on a cross. And so as you hit the crescendo of what I, at least I believe, the crescendo of the New Testament and the teaching uh, of St. Paul, you get to Romans chapter five and he said, but this is what God did. God displayed, God put on display his love for us. How? In that while you and I were schemers, in that while you and I were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. That's how you and I, that's how we know love. So what? So then you keep working towards the crescendo, maybe Romans chapter eight in the New Testament. And he starts Romans chapter eight, verse one with this verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those, for all of the schemers who are in Christ. And you're going to say, Dean, yeah, man, uh, I hear that, but you don't know what I did yesterday. There is therefore now no condemnation. But Dean, you don't know. Whenever, whenever this topic comes up, the first thing that goes back to is, is what I did 25 years ago, 35 years ago. The first thing that jumps to me, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Those of us who walk, what? Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those of us who are willing to live connected above the sun and to make that the priority of our lives, above our religion and above 
our rebellion, to make the most important thing about the future of our lives, this reality that what has become true of the inner me to work its way into the outer me, right? So I'm not gonna ask romance or I'm not gonna ask sex to do for me what only God can do, what only God can supply for me through the person of Christ and in the work of the Spirit. Neither romance nor sex will ever satisfy your soul. You and I are built. We are built for eternal satisfaction. And it answers all of the schemers. Is it immediate? No. That when we receive it, Right? When we possess it, it takes time. It'll take a lifetime for the possession of Christ to be proven in your life and my life. And yet, Solomon, the wisest, most wealthiest, uh, most wealthy, most powerful, the guy who had more resources at his fingertips than any of us, Solomon says, only that, only that eternal relationship above the sun will be the thing that will satisfy our souls. That is the thing that is going to give us what we're about to sing about when our student band comes back out to lead us. That is the only thing that is going to give us living Let's pray together. God, these are um, difficult uh, issues uh, to talk about, difficult issues to address, certainly cultural um, hot buttons that are there. And God, I pray that you will make us as a church, um, that we will be a church that is both com compassionate and clings to the standard of your word, that both of those things, God, would be true. Because God, what we need more than any other thing is a living hope. God, I don't wanna minimize life down to me, to my abilities, to my capabilities, to all I can do. I don't want it, God, to all land on my shoulders. I don't wanna, I don't wanna have to work my schemes. I want something bigger. I want a bigger life. I want, I want a, an eternal impact. It's kind of that black snake moment for us, God. Your word says, repent and return that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So God, that's us today. That's us standing in repentance because we wanna be walking in freedom. We submit, surrender our lives to you in our religion and in our rebellion. And we say that you, you are our living hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and we'll worship together.
can have a seat for just a second. Thanks again for being with us today. If today was your day to follow Christ, we wanna invite you to click the next steps button wherever you're watching. If you've been around for a while, that's likely through our app, but you can also do it through lpguest.com. If you would be willing to share your address with us through our secure platform, we wanna send you a free gift, a book we've written for you called Your Next 30 Days. This resource will help you begin this newfound relationship that you have with Jesus. But that next steps button will also open up opportunities for you to share prayer requests with us as we'd love to care for you and also explore next steps like baptism. In today's message, we heard that our culture often puts love on a pedestal, but God put love on a cross. This week, think about how the love of God can shape your understanding of love in general. Thanks again for being with us this week. We hope to see you next time.